Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, April 6th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. A new bacteria was discovered on the International Space Station, and it could mean interesting things for our future on Mars. The latest shortage in the U.S. has left restaurant owners scrambling to catch up. And are seasonal allergies sexist? (laughs) Of course not, but kind of? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. NASA scientists have found a new bacteria on the International Space Station. And not like new to the ISS, new in general. A previously unknown life form lurking away in a HEPA filter on the station's life support system. It's actually not the first time a new bacterium has been discovered on the ISS. Six years ago, researchers had astronauts swab the station and send the samples back to Earth to be studied. In the succeeding years, researchers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory's Biotechnology and Planetary Protection Group sequenced the genes of microbes isolated in those samples and have found bacteria that doesn't quite match anything else here on Earth. Of the recent sample, they identified Methylobacterium rhodesianum from that HEPA filter sample, but also another species from the same genus that was new, and they called it Methylobacterium ajmali. The previously known one is commonly found hanging out around plant roots, helping turn complex nitrogen sources into nutrients for those plants. Surviving in the sterile environment of the ISS raised eyebrows. So where did these bacteria come from? How did they survive? And what do they mean for the future of space travel? Well, first, they most likely come from astronauts and cargo. We carry microbes with us wherever we go, inside us, on our skin, in our mouths and noses. Astronauts traveling to space are no different, and the microbes they bring along actually have pretty significant impacts on the spacecraft. Quoting Wired, In practice, that means that the environmental microbiome of the ISS looks a lot like the microbiome of the astronauts who live there. It even changes when the crews change, according to a 2019 study. Those researchers looked at skin, nose, and gut microbes from nine astronauts who spent anywhere from a few months to, in one famous case, a year on the ISS, comparing them to before and after mission samples, and to samples from the station itself. Wall samples really looked like astronaut skin. The air filters really looked like astronaut nasal microbiomes, says Alexander Voorhees, a consultant at Booz Allen Hamilton, who was the lead author of the paper back when he was a staff scientist at the J. Craig Venter Institute. End quote. But here's the difference between us bringing microbes into our homes and astronauts bringing them to the ISS. The air on the ISS is drier. It has higher levels of carbon dioxide. There's no gravity, and the radiation levels are way higher. It's also a closed-loop environment. No opening windows for ventilation. All the air and water in it gets recycled. So any microbes that make it there have a lot of places to hang out. But which microbes thrive in that kind of environment and which ones die is the big question. 
Are there bacteria, fungi, and viruses that will spread faster or have special functions in the unique microbiome of the ISS or future bases on the moon or Mars? Or are there ones that won't be able to withstand the unique conditions? These are huge questions to answer when it comes to the health and safety of astronauts pursuing interplanetary missions. For one, space is real bad for human immune systems. Astronauts have caught a number of viral infections they had been previously immunized for. So if certain viruses spread in earnest in space, that could be very bad news for immunocompromised astronauts. And while it's not that these bacteria are evolving during their time in space, the different environment is causing those particular ones to exhibit new or stronger features. For example, when grown on the ISS, E. coli actually got even more resistant to antibiotics than when grown in similar conditions on Earth. And theoretically, some of these changes in gene expression could get passed down over generations and become permanent changes. It's tough to predict, though. Some bacteria can barely survive on the ISS, and others thrive and grow in new ways. Fortunately, and no surprise, NASA is actively working on this, particularly with regards to the health of astronauts. They're sequencing the genes of as many as they can and looking to do more DNA sequencing on the ISS itself, instead of having to send the samples back to Earth. But going back to the methylobacterium found on the ISS, the one that helps plants turn nitrogen sources into nutrients, that's a super useful function to have if we're talking about trying to grow plants on the moon or another planet. And the new species, M. ajmali, quoting Wired, can resist high levels of radiation and survive when it's totally dried out in a sort of suspended animation. In short, this little guy is better at space travel than any human. We want to take advantage of this and see if we can grow it in simulated lunar soil or Martian regolith, said Katsuri Venekatswaran, the JPL microbiologist running the project. It might provide nutrients that would be good because we can't take soil along with us to the moon and Mars. We have to depend on the soil there. End quote. But the problem is the sheer number of microbes that astronauts bring with them wherever they go. Quoting again, A vessel like the ISS or a Mars-bound SpaceX Unlimited presents a kind of evolutionary bottleneck for those bugs. Only some survive the trip, but those that do are perfectly adapted to the environment. A landing on Mars would create a similar bottleneck, a similar filter of life-finds-away-ness. Lots of them will die, but some will turn out to be eminently suited for a new life in the off-world colonies, a golden land of opportunity and adventure. So humans will somehow have to keep the bacteria that might be best suited for life on Mars from getting into the Martian environment and taking over, but also figure out which bacteria can help build a sustainable outpost. And jumping the fence is almost inevitable. You're going to outgas. You're going to leak some microbes. So how do you control them? You need to have the appropriate habitat to live, but spacesuits are bound to leak, Vincatsawaran says. Those that survive may be one in a million, and that is going to proliferate. End quote. It's just pretty wild to think about in so many ways, like the good, maybe being able to grow plants in regolith, and the scary, that we could accidentally take some destructive ones into space without even realizing it. On that TV show I keep mentioning, For All Mankind, the alternate universe Apple TV Plus original where the space race never ended, some of the astronauts on the very first lunar base in that story accidentally spilled an ant farm they had been studying, and a decade later, there's still an ant infestation on the expanded lunar base. And ants you can actually see with the naked eye, so I can only imagine how much more complicated this issue is. 
All right, time for another installment of my semi-regular shortage report. Or should I say, a quick catch-up. Because the latest shortage is... Ketchup. Yes, apparently ketchup is next on the chopping block, but personal consumers need not worry. Yet. The shortage is specifically in ketchup packets, or sachets, as they're known in the biz. And takeout dining is partially to blame, quoting the Wall Street Journal. The pandemic turned many sit-down restaurants into takeout specialists, making individual ketchup packets the primary condiment currency for both national chains and -and mom-and-pop restaurants. Packet prices are up 13% since January 2020, and their market share has exploded at the expense of tabletop bottles, according to restaurant business platform Plate IQ, end quote. Businesses small and large are turning to generic brands, secondary suppliers, and straight up filling those little individual plastic cups with bulk ketchup bottles from places like Costco. Ketchup is America's number one table sauce in terms of annual consumption. Last year, ketchup sales rose 15%, reaching over $1 billion. Kraft Heinz, who holds nearly 70% of the retail market for ketchup in the U.S., is doing what they can to meet the demand. Quoting again, Steve Cornell, Kraft Heinz' president of Enhancer's Specialty and Away From Home Business Unit, said restaurants need patience while it ramps up supply. The company plans to open two new manufacturing lines in April and more after that, increasing production by about 25% for a total of more than 12 billion packets a year. Kraft Heinz already is running extra shifts at plants and cut back on some varieties to focus on making more single-serve packets. The company also invented a no-touch ketchup dispenser to help meet demand for COVID-safe alternatives to shared bottles. End quote. And it's definitely in their best interest to do what they can. As restaurants reluctantly turn to other suppliers, some are encouraging customers to expand their palates. And at least some of the lifelong ride-or-die Heinz fans the Wall Street Journal spoke to say they're willing to try other brands and even loosen their dependency on ketchup altogether. Now, similar to the toilet paper shortage when there was plenty of the stuff made for offices and public spaces available, but not the household kind, I would say for now we're probably still safe with our grocery store bottles of Heinz. The problem does seem to be in the sachet production. But don't be surprised if your takeout order no longer automatically comes with a handful of ketchup packets. More and more establishments are only supplying it on request. Having grown up in Texas, I'm no stranger to seasonal allergies. We tend to think of allergies as a phenomenon that predominantly occurs when you're around a lot of nature. But over the last few decades, allergies have steadily worsened even in urban environments. Now, you may have heard an explanation for this before. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recommends that only male trees be planted on streets to, quote, avoid the nuisance from the seed, end quote. So this means that in cities, you've got male trees spewing their gametes all over the place without any female trees to trap the pollen and fertilize their seeds, meaning the pollen in cities is everywhere. But the story actually goes a bit deeper than that. First, though, let's back up and go over a little tree science. Quoting Atlas Obscura, In trees, sex exists beyond the binary of female and male. 
Some, such as cedar, mulberry, and ash trees, are dioecious, meaning each plant is distinctly male or female. But others, such as oak, pine, and fig trees, are monoecious, meaning that they have male and female flowers on the same plant. It's easy to identify female trees or parts, they're the ones with seeds. And yet more, such as hazelnut and apple trees, produce perfect flowers that contain male and female parts within a single blossom. End quote. So pollen is created by monoecious trees and male dioecious trees. But in the mid-20th century, the USDA decided that the seeds and fruits of trees would be more bothersome to clean up than pollen would, which they thought would be blown away by the wind or washed away by the rain. So in their 1949 Yearbook of Agriculture, they recommended for the first time that only male trees be planted. But there are a lot of trees in cities that are older than that, so how did we end up with so many male trees in so many cities across the country? Well, quoting Atlas Obscura, in the first half of the 20th century, lush, hermaphroditic, not-so-allergenic elm trees towered over many American streets. But in the 1960s, a virulent strain of Dutch elm disease, a fungal illness spread by the bark beetle, stowed away on a shipment of logs from Britain. The fungus wiped out some of American City's longest-lived trees and left many streets almost entirely devoid of green or shade. By 1989, an estimated 75% of North America's 77 million elm trees were dead, according to the New York Times. City planners and landscapers repopulated the nation's barren, sun-scored streets, according to USDA guidelines, with more than 100 new varieties of maple clones, all male. Over the years, male willow, poplar, ash, mulberry, aspen, and pepper trees joined them. As these trees matured, they shed increasing quantities of pollen. Nurseries began selling more male plants too, in part because it's easier to clone an existing tree than to wait for males and females to pollinate each other naturally. Now, it's not just trees and shrubs, but ornamental plants sold in urban nurseries that skew male. End quote. Tom Ogren, a horticulturalist and author of Allergy-Free Gardening, The Revolutionary Guide to Healthy Landscaping, has been studying this link between allergies and urban planting policy for years. He calls it botanical sexism. And he makes a fantastic and infuriating point, quote, If they had done it the opposite and planted hundreds of female trees with no males, it would have been just as sterile and tidy without any pollen. Female trees don't make fruits or seeds if there are no males around, end quote. Pollen from a large male tree will only travel about 20 or 30 feet, so as long as the female trees were isolated from that distance, bam, no fruits, seeds, or pollen. Paul Rees, however, the director of Oregon State University's College of Forestry, says the problem is a much larger lack of diversity, saying, quote, Anytime we plant an overabundance of one type of tree, whether it's a single species, a genus, or, in the case of so-called botanical sexism, male trees, there are bound to be problems, end quote. He also offers a good critique of Ogren's coinage of botanical sexism, saying, quote, Ascribing a real-life human problem to the botanical world might seem like we're trivializing what humans, particularly women, face, end quote. Fair point. Despite the name, however, Ogren has been doing a ton of work to reduce allergies in urban environments, and particularly in places with vulnerable communities, like at daycares and hospitals. 
He developed the Ogren Plant Allergy Scale, or OPALS, which some institutions are beginning to consult when landscaping new developments. Of course, it's slow going because apart from Ogren staying pretty local with the initiative, he's also not asking people to cut down trees and replace them, just cut them back or plant low allergy species when replacing dead trees. But there is one further cause of increased allergies. Climate change. Quoting Atlas Obscura, According to a recent study in Lancet Planetary Health, the increase in extreme temperatures contributes to more potent allergy seasons. Summers come earlier and last longer, and certain species, such as cypress and juniper, have begun blooming again in the fall, Ogren says. End quote. So, initiatives like opals, especially in places such as Durham, North Carolina, where a bunch of trees planted in the 1930s are just about ready to be replaced, will definitely help. But overall, like so much else, we need to make major strides on the climate crisis to see any substantial breakthroughs on the mounting pollen problem. Alright, so yesterday I joked about having somber news because the Space Jam website from 1996 was finally updated. Tragedy. But today I have slightly more actually serious news in the same vein. Yahoo Answers is officially shutting down. On May 4th, my birthday of all days, I can't believe Yahoo is doing me so dirty. On May 4th, the whole site will be inaccessible. But April 20th is the last day that you can ask or answer a question, so mark that on your calendars, April 20th. From then until May 4th, it will be in read-only mode. And if you were ever a big user of Yahoo Answers and have content that you want to download, you have until June 30th to request that. Link in the show notes for instructions on how to do that. But yeah, wow, an end of an era. I do slightly wonder where some of the Yahoo Answers traffic will go, because even though Yahoo's official announcement basically tells people to just use their search engine, the point of Yahoo Answers was getting responses from real people, even if that wasn't always necessarily the best source. There was a humanity and community element to it, as well as more than a little bit of comedy. So, yeah, I don't know, maybe Quora and Reddit will get a little boost of new users next month, but I'll be curious to see if it kind of changes the vibe and landscape of those at all. But, yeah, that's it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day. And for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry, with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.